Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning comes from our sermon text, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, beginning at verse 5. Hear God's word. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people, Israel? Thus far the reading of God's word. If you look ahead in our service today, in the Heidelberg Catechism, we're turning to the topic of prayer, and we'll consider how it is we are to pray to God. We see Jehoshaphat doing this in our text here. Uh, Traditionally, on certain holidays, our president will call the nation to thanksgiving. Some have called us to repentance and fasting in the past as well. It's important that God's people hear their leaders interceding for them. Fathers need to pray out loud in the presence of their children, for their children. Husbands, pray for your wives. Pastors, pray for their churches. Princes, for their people. Fathers, especially, and mothers, should give their training, their children, training in time to lead the family in prayer. And when we all pray together, it's an expression of our unity in the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. This aspect of worship works against our sinful tendencies to neglect prayer, to neglect leading in prayer, practicing prayer. We also uh, tend to neglect praying for our church family, for our nation, for a spouse, for children. Uh, But we can be mindful of the communion of saints together. As we begin to consider this passage, I want to ask you a question that may seem like an odd place to start, but let's start at the very beginning with Adam and Eve in the garden. What did God want with Adam and Eve in the first place? There are all kinds of ways to answer that question, but consider this. God wanted a reflection of himself in faith, hope, and love. That's one thing that he wanted. Uh, Adam and Eve made in God's image. It took faith, hope, and love for Adam and Eve to obey God's command to subdue the earth, multiply, to not eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But they failed. And yet God promises to reform us to successfully carry out this calling. The key word there, of course, is reform. This is Reformation Day. And I'm going to argue from our text this morning that God saves his people by reforming them according to his word. So let's consider that in Second Chronicles 20 with King Jehoshaphat. This king sought God from the beginning of his reign. Chapter 17 says, his heart took delight in the ways of the Lord. He uh, says that his, he was courageous in God's ways, which is a, a great phrase. Jehoshaphat reformed the nation's justice system. He provided for righteous teachers and judges throughout the land. 
And here we see him respond faithfully to an attack on God's people. So the first two verses of our chapter, the enemies of God's people threaten. Uh, They attack the church, too, today, and try to get her to compromise. In various ways, Satan comes and attacks uh, various nations here coming against Israel. Verses 3 to 5, God's leaders turn to God and turn their people to God. And that's one of the wonderful things that Jehoshaphat does here, is he leads faithfully. He sees the threat, he turns to God, points Israel to God, and prays to God before Israel, for Israel. He seeks the Lord, it says in verse 4. Judah assembled to seek help from God. Verse 3, Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord. We had that in our uh, opening call to worship, too. Uh, Seek the Lord. It's a a great call to worship. Uh, You know how you uh, sometimes you lose your car keys or your wallet or your phone, maybe? And you know that point where you've noticed it's missing for a little bit too long? And you, you start a systematic search? Like, wait a minute, where did this thing go? That's this word. Seek the Lord. Where, where you move from a more casual, huh, I wonder where that went, to a, I need to have that back, and I need to find it now. That's the kind of word this is. Seek the Lord. They gather in the new court, probably restored by Asa, uh, Jehoshaphat's father. Verses 6 through 9, it's interesting here. One way Jehoshaphat leads is that he recalls God's promises and the history of God's people. It's one reason we celebrate Reformation Day. We're doing something of the same thing. He appeals to who God is. Uh, This is verse 6. God of our fathers. Uh, Abraham was your friend. End of verse 7. You have this appeal to history. You acted for Abraham and Moses and David. You gave them the land. We built a sanctuary for your name in this land. We go and here we are in it praying to you. And we can say the same with even more history. That we can appeal to the God of Constantine and Alfred, of Luther and Wycliffe and Kelvin. We appeal to who God is. We consider what he's done in history. We appeal to what God did. He drove out the nations for Israel to live before him. And he appeals to what God promises regarding Solomon's temple. His main request in prayer, God grants, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek their face. That's all in the context of dedicating Solomon's temple. If we come and pray to you, the one true God, at your temple, hear us. And so Jehoshaphat is acting on that promise. Uh, as Martin Luther King put it in his great speech, he, he, he cashed in the promissory note. Right? God gave a promise. And he said, we need to cash that in today. Lord, help us. So he also says, you rule the course of all the nations. God is sovereign over all things. That's a hallmark Reformation belief as well. Verse 10 through 13, you have the plea for help. God has allowed his enemies to exist and to harass God's people. Lord, will you not judge them? Execute judgment, verse 12. And yet, even as he prays that, Jehoshaphat also admits, verse 12, we are powerless against this great horde. We don't know what to do. They don't know how to defeat this superior force. 
So our eyes are on you, Lord, with all of our families, our wives, our little ones. Reformation is not confined to the individual heart. That's certainly described here. But it uh, moves beyond that to national politics, to the church. Families are transformed by turning to the Lord. So there they are. Meanwhile, Judah stood before the Lord. I gave a little bit of a dramatic pause there between verse 13 and 14. I think it was just quiet for a little bit. We don't know how long. But the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Jehaziel. This guy comes out of nowhere. We don't know this guy. <laughs> we get his lineage and that he's a son of Asaph, a Levite. But other than that, we don't know who this guy is. The point there is that the Spirit often moves in obscurity. Uh, he does move in obscurity. It ends up uh, coming not from Jehoshaphat, the king, but from an unknown uh, priest that God speaks. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, God says in Zechariah 4. Uh, I think that's important to remember in Reformation, too. The Reformation happened by many unknown people. We point to the, the big prominent names, but there were many uh, who are seeking God. Uh, we tend in these days to look to the White House uh, for help, for power. But it's doubtful that the Spirit will descend and lead America to repentance from there. It's not impossible, but it's not likely. But God will send help. And so what does he say? Verse 15, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, Thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde. That's the first task, and that's a big one in itself. There's a lot of dismay out there among Christians about our culture right now, and sometimes we just need to stop it. We can be grieved about the way our culture is going, but not dismayed, as if we have no hope, nowhere to turn, no salvation. Don't be dismayed. Verse 16, get in position. He tells them exactly geographically where to go. And then you won't need to fight. Verse 17, stand firm. Hold your position. It's almost like a military command kind of thing. And hold the line kind of idea. Just stand there and you will see God's salvation. That, by the way, that is the Hebrew word uh, Yasha, from which the name Yeshua, Jesus, comes. So we read from Hebrews 2 today that we see Jesus for that reason. Sometimes we need to stand, hold our position, and see Jesus, and God will fight for us. That's our central call. And the Reformers, one after another, realized this. They realized that Rome's merry-go-round of masses and rosaries and penance and pilgrimages to relics were all just getting in the way of standing still and seeing Jesus. So he tells them to get in position. Verse 18 and 19, now the response. Jehoshaphat bows. He, he, he receives this word of God gratefully as the word of God. That's a key hallmark of the Reformation too, by the way, to receive the word as God's word. And then the Levites respond to that by praising God with a very loud voice. They sing with voices loud and high, it says uh, elsewhere. Please don't sing in a half-hearted manner to God. Give him your all. Uh, one mark of the Reformation was a congregation that would sing. 
And that's what we're seeking to do. There are some who say, didn't have this in my notes, but I guess I'll throw it out there. This is the, the grenade for the day. There are some who say that um, the contemporary church scene is uh, like the medieval church. In the medieval church, it was the priest up on stage who did everything while the people watched. And uh, many of our contemporary churches are falling into that same kind of pattern. Uh, they simply watch the band up front perform the music, and they just watch it happen. Reformation calls for the congregation to participate and to sing themselves, to pray themselves, to know what's going on, and to engage with their mind and their heart in Reformation. That's what's going on here. One hallmark of the Reformation in the 1500s was a congregation that would sing. You would walk through a, a French town, a French city, and you would hear in the evening psalms being sung in a house. And you would know that house was a Protestant house because they're singing as a family. And that made, like in France, that made the Huguenots very easy to persecute because they could very easily know who they were. So what would they do? They would flee to the countryside and worship in barns so that they could sing. 500 years ago in France or among French refugees, they were singing the same tune we sang today. I love the Lord, the fount of life and grace. So sing. Verse 20, they rise early the next morning and Jehoshaphat again leads. What does he say? Hear me, Judah. Believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Singing and praise is really just one evidence of faith. They praise the beauty of holiness, notice. I don't think we consider that often enough, the, the adornment, the beauty of God's holiness. We're praising a majestic, glorious, beautiful God. So that's our call. And God takes it from there, verse 22 and 24, uh, through 24. As they sing, send out the choir ahead of the army, as they sing and praise, God sets an ambush, and he turns them against uh, one another. There's a connection I think, between when they start singing and when God acts. That's there in the text. Now, we don't want to be superstitious about that, like we can conjure up God with anything. But there is a real godly strength that comes to you when you sing to God. Luther himself said that. He's famous for it. What do you do when you get depressed, when you get down, Martin? He said, I sing the, I sing the 100th, the old 100th. All people that on earth do dwell. We sing a mighty fortress kind of with that same way. We notice it when we sing. It gives us strength uh, to sing it, uh, to sing God's kingdom and sing against the powers of hell. So the enemies fall, verse 23. They fall by turning on each other. That's a classic theme in literature, and it happens often throughout history. Uh, again, in the Huguenot movement in France, the Reformation, uh, much of the time it was sustained because the enemies of the Reformation were divided and fought against each other. You had the Roman church on one side, you had the nobility on the other side, who were often at each other's throats, which gave the Reformation time to flourish and grow. Or think of the, the Lord of the Rings at the end, right? Orc turns against orc. And that's why Frodo can march right through to Mount Doom with the ring. So, that God acts. The enemies are ambushed. They plunder, notice, verses 25 to 28. Don't miss this. 
They put to godly use the things that man makes. They take these things, there is much joy. Uh, they, it takes three days, and then they, they bless God for it with singing. So that's something to, to consider. Um, I don't know if this is a, a, I think it's an appropriate application. Uh, Israel, coming out of Egypt, plundered the Egyptians, right? Same kind of thing going on here. Plunder uh, these nations and put to godly use the things that man makes. That's what we're called to do. Then God gives them rest, verses 29 and 30, at the end of our text. Just like Joshua, God gives rest to the land after they uh, have the victory. I didn't read verses 31 to 33. I meant to do that. Let me look there now. Jehoshaphat reigns in Judah. He's 35 when he starts. He reigns 25 years. He walked in the way of Asa, his father, and did not turn aside from it, doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. And then this interesting last verse note. The high places, however, were not taken away. The people had not yet set their hearts upon the God of their fathers. Scripture often does this. It ends on a kind of a downer note like that. We, we don't like that. Our stories, we want to have end on the happy ending, the, the happy ever after, right? No, look at that. The high places are still there. In spite of Jehoshaphat's leadership, in spite of God fighting for his people, we still want to go on the high places and worship. It's an incomplete reformation done by imperfect people. God certainly gave Israel, Judah, I should say, and King Jehoshaphat more than they deserved. Our leaders couldn't do all the right things, but the nation is still guilty before God, serving idols, serving their own individual pleasure. Incomplete reformation by an imperfect people. Except, if we turn to Hebrews 9, 10, we see a reformation there as well. Hebrews 9, where the author is speaking of uh, the service of the tabernacle and the temple. He then says, These things deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So scripture itself, interestingly, describes Jesus' ministry as a reformation. It was a reformation from the Old Testament temple and its uh, ritual sacrifices to Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Let's take a moment to briefly apply all of this. Number one, reformation starts in the heart. Jehoshaphat was afraid, notice, I think that's verse three, and that emotion is natural given a host of armies on your border about to invade. Sometimes scripture describes someone as afraid and it's a, it's a character problem. It's like you shouldn't, you shouldn't be afraid. Here, his fear uh, what he does with it is supernatural. His fear leads him to seeking God's face, fasting. He gives his face to seek the Lord, the presence of God. It reminds me of Jesus setting his face to go to Jerusalem. It's a resolute purpose in your soul 
to be right before God and to seek help from him. And he then calls all Israel to fast. I looked it up, I may be mistaken, but the last American president that I could find who called for the nation to repent and to fast was Abraham Lincoln in 1864. There may be one since, let me know if there is, but it's been a while. Reformation starts in the heart, but it doesn't stay there. It leads to public action. And that's what we see with King Jehoshaphat. That's what we saw in the Reformation in uh, Calvin's Geneva, in Luther in Wittenberg. It didn't just stay in the heart. A whole uh, community gathers around Luther's table and hears him present God's word. Schools spring up in Geneva. The poor are taken care of. The Reformation is like a river. It cascades from individual heart to family standing before God, to churches, to nations. Uh, the Reformation is like a river. We're going to sing in a second. Like a river glorious is God's perfect peace over all victorious in its bright increase. So, like a river glorious. The Reformation starts in the heart. It doesn't stay there. It flows out. Uh, number two, uh, we have enemies, just as Jehoshaphat did. The attack is often not as dramatic today as it was for Jehoshaphat, but it's there. Uh, sometimes it does get dramatic, as we've seen in the last few years. Uh, in the past, there were false sons in our pale, men like Servetus or Pelagius or Arminius. Today, there are teachers like, well... Who should I name? Andy Stanley, perhaps. Those who teach a false, a distorted gospel. Pray for the church to withstand error. That's why we sing those hymns like, O God of earth and altar, our earthly rulers falter. That's why we sing the church's one foundation. Uh, the most important and overlooked enemy often is the sinful nature that we still have as believers. That remains true even as we look to cultural reformation. We are called to lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares. And again, Luther's hymn helps us here. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? Were not the right man on our side the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus. It is he. Lord Sabaoth. That means Lord of hosts in Hebrew. That's his name. From age to age the same. And he must win the battle. So there's a battle. It rages at every cascading level of the river. Against the church worldwide. Against uh, nations giving their people freedom against the institutions of family and marriage. We can be our own worst enemy in our hearts, but Jesus will win, and he will make us more than conquerors. Last point today is to, uh, as we fight the battle, we need to resist the, uh, the urge of perfectionism. And this again goes to the last verse, verse 33 of our text. We see Asa and Jehoshaphat striving to do the right thing, but both are not able to follow God completely 
in every area of life. None of us can do that. We still uh, believe in total depravity. We read that in the Heidelberg Catechism in the last week or two as well. We should strive to be perfect, but we need to avoid the plague of perfectionism. And what I mean by the difference is sometimes we will condemn faithful people for any little flaw. Sometimes we're convinced that we're being fully faithful when there's plenty that we're still missing in how we could live better for the Lord. The reformers of Luther's time were not perfect. They were, well, maybe you think this is not an error. I think it is. They were killing people for doctrinal error. Luther said horrible things about the Jews. James tells us we all stumble in many ways. So Reformation Day is not necessarily a day for triumphalism. Let us remain humble while we celebrate what God has done through men like Asa, Jehoshaphat, Luther, and Bootser. And let's look to the only one who is good, the only perfect reformer, Jesus Christ. Stand still and see the salvation of Yahweh. See Jesus, his ministry, the Reformation. When the ritual law was no longer imposed and he offered the perfect sacrifice once and for all for our sin. Let us look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending us a reformer and a redeemer. Uh, Your Holy One, your Son, because you loved the world so much. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that we can look to Jesus, learn about him in your word. There is so much to learn, Lord. We have so many false ideas from the world around us, from our own heads, about who this Jesus is. Help us to conform our thoughts and our lives to your word, to be reformed in that most basic sense. Thank you that you are doing that work in us, that we need not rely on our own efforts, but that it is your power that will bring about uh, the sanctification, the glorifying of your people. And as you bring uh, your people, this bride, to your son, he will receive all the glory at the Lamb's high feast. So we pray in the name of Jesus, and we sing as he taught us to pray. Hebrews chapter 9, hear God's word. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, he entered once for all into the holy places, 
not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So the point of this, in part, is that this table that we gather around week by week has been reformed. This table used to be an altar where animal sacrifices were offered. If this were 3,000 years ago, I would be holding a knife, dealing with blood, and giving you roasted meat to eat as a peace offering before God. And that was faithful worship before the God of Abraham who was to send Jesus. But now Jesus has brought about a reformation. His sacrifice ended the need for all blood sacrifice. The question for us today is, is our life reformed like this table? Do we receive the nourishing, refreshing life of Jesus and pass it on to others? That's what we're doing as we take part in communion. Or are we trying to obey our own way into God's favor? That's a devilish trap to rely on our own obedience, to define ourselves by our obedience instead of by God's grace. Jesus has been given to you, but you didn't ask for Jesus to be given to you, but here he is. And if you want to live, you must stand still and believe. So the gifts of God for the people of God. We invite to the Lord's table all those who are baptized and under the authority of Christ and his body, the church. As we eat the bread and drink the wine together, we are acknowledging that we are sinners without hope except in God's sovereign mercy, that we are trusting in Christ alone for our salvation. So come and welcome to the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.